This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. For over 15 years, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, sponsoring third-party research on a broad range of public management issues facing us today. The past several decades have seen far greater attention to the challenge of making government programs work better. There is no better bellwether of this movement than the high-risk report of the U.S. Government Accountability Office, a biennial assessment of the biggest challenges facing some of the federal government's most important programs. The high-risk list is a roadmap for improving performance throughout government. It is much more than a catalog of government's toughest, nastiest management problems, although it is certainly that. More importantly, it is a guide to what it takes to solve those problems. What are the root causes of high-risk problems? How can agencies get off the high-risk list? And what are some of the strategies to keep you off the high-risk list? Today, we will explore these questions and much more with Dr. Don Kettle, one of the nation's most insightful observers of government operations, who has reviewed what changes in the high-risk list mean over time in his recent IBM Center report, Managing Risk, Improving Results, Lessons for Improving Government Management, from GAO's high-risk list. Don, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's so good to be with you here today. Also joining us from IBM is Lisa Mascolo. Lisa, welcome. Thank you very much. So, Don, what is the GAO's high-risk list report? Uh, what prompted its creation, and how does it make? How does it seek to make government programs work better? This is really a, a monster report that now they've been doing for 25 years. They started back in the 90s as a result of some of the problems that have been coming up actually in the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And there were major problems there in contracting and in grant management. And the question was, I wonder if there's anything else like this out there in the government. And the Office of Management and Budget at the time did its own analysis, but GAO sunk its teeth into the issue as well. And as they started looking, the answer was, well, yes, there are other problems like this. And every two years since, they've been coming out with another report The goal is to try to identify the programs that are most at risk for waste, fraud, mismanagement, abuse, the kinds of things that end up on the front pages of newspapers or in 60 Minutes. And the goal is to try to identify what those are and what the root causes are so we can try to find some way to be able to solve them. So what would you describe for us the criteria uh, for identifying an area that would be high risk? And one of the things that's been interesting over time is the GAO has, has changed its criteria. And what they've done is, for the most part, look at the, the underlying issues that have to do with, is this a program where 
there are problems in management where there are problems of leadership, where there's a lot of money that's involved and where either there's demonstrated evidence of problems or we're going down this road is likely to create further problems down the road. I mean, one example easily is, for example, the the Defense Department's procurement process and some of the problems that they've had in trying to manage some defense systems. The other hand, one program that comes back regularly is the census. It's one of those things you do once, you do once every 10 years, and you got to do it right. You can't come back next month and try it again. So on the one hand, demonstrated problems that GAO has wanted to pay attention to. On the other, things that they know that have to be done right and where there's no room for error. It, it seems like the high-risk series would be a sort of treasure trove for reporters. You know, to what extent do you think that has been the case? And could you describe for us some of the most complex delivery challenges the government has had? Sure. And in fact, uh, it's no surprise that uh, my example, 60 Minutes, wasn't just accidental. If you're a reporter for 60 Minutes, this is just a trove constantly for for plumbing away, looking for problems. Like many GAO reports, it's the kind of thing that leads to the kind of investigations that reporters can zero in on to demonstrate problems in government. The bigger problem here is that there are more fundamental issues that are at the core. And the issue here is whether or not there's some things in a broader sense we can learn. For the most part, the high-risk list has been a series of anecdotes more than anything else. The 32 different programs on the list at this point, and that amounts to 32 different stories that reporters can write. Uh, reporters have written some of them, actually haven't written all of them. There are more things there that are yet to be done. But the more interesting problem by far for me, I think, is what this tells us about government and about what works right, what doesn't work quite so well, and what we can do to try to make it better. So really, with this report of mine, I'm trying to approach it as more of a glass is half full kind of problem because I really see it as a, as a guide to what it is that we ought to be able to do better. Um, would you tell us a little bit about the 2015 edition, how many programs are on the list, and perhaps you could highlight some of the more serious programs considered to be at risk? Sure. There are about, there are, at this point, there are 32 programs on the 2015 list, and 2015 is the most recent list. There'll be another one in the beginning of 2017, and the programs really run the gamut. There's some that have been on since the very beginning, like the Medicare program, not surprisingly, it involves so much money and it's so complicated that it is, by GAO's definition, at risk for fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement. There's the Medicaid program as well, which, because of the complex relationship with the states, creates lots of opportunities for for problems, for mistaken payments, for other kinds of issues having to do with service delivery. But there are other things that are maybe not quite so obvious. There's, for example, weather satellites. It turns out that we are incredibly dependent, not surprisingly, on good pictures and telemetry from weather satellites to, for example, tell us where hurricanes are going to go. And these systems that we have up there now are fragile. Many are nearing the end of their lives. And if one collapses, we could find ourselves without important coverage at exactly the wrong moment. So that's a very high-risk issue as well. So if you look at that, supply chain management in the Pentagon problems of uh, surface transportation and managing those pieces. The, the problem that the Department of the Interior has in collecting royalties that are due from oil and gas that private companies take out of the ground. It's a really a wide-ranging list from things that we are not surprised about, like Medicare and Medicaid and many defense programs, to some things that we might not have thought about looking for. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how the list has evolved over time, what the either the changes in criteria or you know what's the nature and the scope of the programs from the beginning to today? 
the original list, and this was back in 1990, there were 14 programs on the list. Now there are 32. And so we've expanded the list considerably. An interesting question is whether that means, does that mean the government's now twice as bad as it was before? And I think what it really means is that GAO is being twice as careful. They are poking much more carefully in some of these issues. They are trying to get ahead of some of these challenges before small problems become big disasters. And they are trying to track things on a more systematic basis so that Congress can be better informed about the decisions and actions that it needs to take. But what we've really seen is an expansion of the list, an expansion into more categories. And GAO is also spending a lot more time now trying to understand both the, the root causes of some of these problems, but also to try to track progress. Because there was a complaint for a long time that, well, we got on the list and I guess we understand, but how do we get off? Well, it's hard to tell. How far are we down the road? Well, good luck. And <laughs> it's one of those things, Geo, not surprisingly, isn't in the management consulting business. And so they don't necessarily need to or in a position to be able to tell agencies what to do. But what we really have now is a much more sophisticated and much more methodologically careful way of looking at these basic questions of what government's problems are and what we can try to do to solve them. And that's really been the biggest change over time, the increase in GAO's own sophistication in trying to understand what risk in government means and why it matters. Yeah. And so, you know, when you, when you delve into the report, Don, you know, it gives you a fascinating tour or, or overview of some of the government's most pressing problems. But it also sheds some light on certain things. And I'd like you to sort of talk about three elements that make the high-risk series uh, sort of a, a tool for improving government performance. The thing that I've, I really find most interesting is that for the most part, to step back, most people when they read the report don't read the report. I mean, it's, it's 400 pages and it's kind of tough to get through for all but the geekiest geeks. And I think there are probably only a handful of people who even actually read the thing from cover to cover. People go and look for their favorites and dive in. But if, in fact, you were to look at it cover to cover, there's some very interesting findings that begin coming out as you look across the programs. And one of the things that happens is that we, we can understand that a lot of the core problems have to do with managing problems across boundaries. Almost no government program of any kind is anything that any one agency can control any longer. Everything requires coordination across boundaries. And the single most common problem that these high-risk problems all share is the problem of spanning boundaries. And underneath that is the problem of getting good performance metrics and getting good information systems and with a whole series of issues. And But then underlying all this is a second kind of issue because – in almost all cases, these really are people problems. It's one thing to say that we need to span boundaries, but we need people who know how to do that so that the government's human capital system is one of the high-risk issues, but I'm fond of pointing out the fact that that really is the one thing that links across everything. Better and smarter people in the right places are what we need to try to solve these issues. And then a third piece is the importance of getting the information systems right. We just really need a way to be able to track what government's doing, to be able to follow performance. And in some cases, it's just the information systems themselves that are part of the problem. So if we were to try to just get at those things in particular, we'd be a long way down the road toward being able to solve not only these high-risk problems themselves, but also the, the broader collection of issues that government's really struggling with. And one of the things you talk about, Don, in your book is the managing of risk across the government uh, enterprise. And how has the federal government taken in a more expansive strategy 
for understanding and managing risk. You identified two elements. Could you tell us about those? Sure. I mean, one of the, one of the big things that's really changed dramatically is first that there now is a broader risk management strategy at the core of all of this. When GAO originally began the high risk list back in 1990, it was a collection of individual things that amounted to the, whoa, this looks like it might be problems. We ought to pay attention to this. And so there's been much more of an effort now to focus far more attention on a, a broad system-wide effort to identify risk, to understand that there are some patterns that could end up causing waste, fraud, and abuse unless we keep an eye on them. And so there's that set of things. And then the second thing that we need to pay attention to as well is the, the need to develop the combination of government's capacity and response, the, the problem of getting sufficient human capital, the problem of getting information systems, the problem of getting our processes straight to try to get ahead of these risk issues as they begin to bubble up. And so many of the problems that we have as a, are a result of, of not only not understanding the nature of risk, but in the failure to build capacity in advance to try to manage and to try to solve those issues as they begin to bubble up before they become major crises. What are the root causes of high-risk problems? We will explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors Returns. latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Dr. Don Kettle, author of the IBM Center Report, Managing Risk, Improving Results, Lessons for Improving Government Management from GAO's High Risk List. Also joining us from IBM is Lisa Bascolo. Your analysis, uh, Don, revealed the eight most important root cause problems. How did you go about identifying these root causes? And would you elaborate, and this is the most important part of the question, would you elaborate on each of these causes? Sure. Let me, let me tick through those. And, but before doing that, uh, just a note, because uh, some people may wonder how it is that I came to this list to begin with. And what I did is I, I read the reports. And I read the high-risk report itself, which, as I said, is about 400 pages worth of uh, either mind-numbing or absolutely fascinating, and count me in the fascinating category of looking at this because it really provides a deep dive into government's most important and most difficult challenges. And then I began looking for common pieces. And I had a sneaking suspicion that, that people and technology and finances and contract management were likely to be at the core. But I started trying to look for common themes that started to surface. So this was the things that I found as I started reading not only the, the big high-risk report, but also the background reports mm -hmm. that GAO has published on each of these areas. And it's one of these things, if you were to try to pull together all of GAO's printed reports on all these things, it was stretched from the floor to the ceiling and then some. There's a lot of stuff here. But as you look at it, there are eight things really that are at the core. And the first 
is this inability to span boundaries. Most of the problems that government faces have to do with managing across boundaries, not so much managing programs themselves, but managing the connections between programs. And that turns out to be the case in, in 25 out of the 32 different areas in the high-risk list. 25 out of the 32 are really boundary management problems, which is perhaps surprising to a lot of people that there is that much commonality and that the commonality has to do with this reaching across boundaries piece. The second is the problem of developing performance metrics, and the government's made a fair amount of progress on this, but still a long way to go. Uh, third is the fact that some of the information systems that government relies on are aging and inadequate, need to be replaced. Some of it's just a hardware acquisition problem. Uh, some of it, frankly, is a matter that Congress needs to act on. In some cases, in the case of weather satellites, Congress simply needs to appropriate more money in advance to be able to build the satellites and put them in orbit before we discover in the middle of a hurricane that we need them. A uh, little hard if uh, you can't go down to the, your friendly satellite store if a hurricane's approaching and loft one into orbit fast enough to get your pictures. So some of this requires congressional action in advance. Part of it's the, the problem of skill sets of government employees. Government employees to, to do their job need the skills that are required for 21st century government which then gets back to the problem of managing across boundaries because there's no more important 21st century skill set than that. There is the issue of ineffective financial management controls. Uh, you could write a report that goes all the way back to the revolution and pull that one out, but it's always a matter of getting good financial controls in place. And the problems that plague many of these programs are rooted in that. Uh, the next issue is ineffective contract management. Not surprisingly, since government relies so much on acquisitions and procurement, often when problems occur and when things go bad, it's because the procurement system and somewhere is broken along the line. And then beyond that is just the problem of managing technological complexity. Some of these issues just are hard. Mm -hmm. And they're hard technologically and require not only people with the skills to do it, but also a, an approach that allows government to be as smart as, as partners that it's working with, both in other agencies and other levels of government, and, but especially in the private sector. Mm -hmm. And you acknowledge that you know, the root causes individually are troublesome. Uh, however, you note that many of these uh, root causes, these areas, these risk areas rather, are afflicted by multiple root causes which interact and multiply the challenges. Why are the, what are the implications of the clusters of root causes and why are they not so surprising? And to tackle the last question first, it's probably not so surprising if you start thinking about these issues that I found that they, they occur together okay. and that it also helps to explain why it's so hard sometimes to solve these issues because it's not just one issue that we have to solve. If it were easy, we would have done it a long time ago. These things are tough because they're difficult and they're difficult because they involve multiple pieces. And if you think, for example, simply about the problem of, uh, of improving Medicare and Medicaid, a lot of that has to do with the fact that there are relatively few people in place who are in charge of doing it. Uh, my favorite statistic about the entire federal government is that Medicare and Medicaid combined account for 20 percent of all federal spending, but 0.2 percent of all federal employees or an average, each, each employee who works for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is responsible for, on average, over $144 million each when they go to work in the morning. And so you start off with the importance of managing boundaries since the federal government doesn't deliver Medicare and Medicaid. It pays the people in the private sector who do. So there's a boundary management piece that gets into the contract management issue because 
the federal government needs people who are in charge of third-party reimbursement. It gets into the technological com- complexity and information systems and the performance questions because you've got to know what it is that you're doing and being able to track it. It gets down to financial management so that you know whether or not you've got contractors who are paying for, for wheelchairs that they shouldn't. But not surprisingly, it all goes back to the people issue at the core because if each employee, when she or he goes to work, is responsible for over $144 million, they better have a good day. They, we re- rely incredibly on the skills of individual employees who work for the government to leverage the quality of government services across sectors. So it's not surprising that these problems are hard to solve, that when you don't solve them well, that there's risk involved, that there's a lot of money at play, and that there's no magic bullet. But on the other hand, it does go to show that it's possible at least to do it. We've talked a little bit about root cause analysis. For the layperson, can you tell us what root cause analysis is and what are the ways in which it might be interpreted? Sure. And the, the easiest way to look at it is, if this goes wrong, how bad could it be? And what are the things that, if it goes wrong, are most likely to have the biggest effects? And so if we're interested, for example, in making sure that we collect the revenues that the federal government is owed by private companies who drill on federal lands, that we need to understand, first, there's a lot of money here that's involved because there are a lot of federal lands from which a lot of federal uh, agencies are, are responsible for being able to track what's happening. A lot of private companies in charge of paying, in this case in particular, the Bureau of Land Management for their royalties for the oil that's and gas that's being taken out. You need to be able to track it, and it turns out they didn't have very good systems for doing that. You need to have people who are skilled at being able to make sure that happens. You need information systems. So what happens if that doesn't happen? Well, the federal government loses tens of billions of dollars of revenue. And when revenue's tight, that's not so good. But on the other hand, if you manage to get that right, you can end up not only recapturing the revenue that you need, but paying for the people who are in charge of doing it. And so it's one of those cases where getting it wrong can be very costly. Getting it right requires getting the right people in the right places. So you, it's a matter of trying to figure out what problem you're trying to solve and what solutions are most likely to work and making sure they match up. So root causes are really just a, a fancy way of talking about the things you've got to get right if you want to get these problems solved. So in prior years, GAO removed programs from the list that had demonstrated substantial progress. Starting in 2015, it made the criteria for removal from the list explicit. Would you tell us more about the GAO criteria for removal from the high-risk list and what are the benefits of making this criteria, making these criteria explicit? Now, once upon a time, agencies used to complain that they were on the list and they sort of got why. They weren't sure what they needed to get off and they weren't sure how close to the finish line that they were. And GAO stepped back and said, well, you know, to tell you the truth, we've, we've been doing this for a while, but you've got a point that it is kind of hard to tell how much progress you're making. And if you've read GAO reports, they... They've got to be very careful about what they say, but it's the standard GAO report says uh, progress is made, but substantial challenges remain. And so most GAO reports have that kind of thing. Well, if you're in the agency, well, well thank you, but exactly what are those challenges and are, are we close? And so what GAO has tried to do is to say, yes, there are ways that we're going to be able to measure this. And so they've got a new system that has a series of metrics that focus on, for example, how much managerial improvement and focus is there. The top leaders care about this. Is there a plan for being able to accomplish the success that the agencies need? Are there metrics for being able to to track that? Are required resources available? Uh, Is there 
a way to be able to understand what the finish line looks like from the agency's point of view. And so GAO has looked at these things in particular and in case by case by case has assessed how good of a job agencies are doing. It's a little bit of a difficult challenge here for GAO because GAO is in the analysis and the evaluation business and not in the uh, management consulting business. So it doesn't want to prescribe to agencies exactly what to do. And on top of that, it wants to be careful not only to keep an arm's length kind of relationship, but it also, in a lot of these cases, doesn't want to presume that it knows more than the agencies do, but it wants to at least track the fact that agencies are making progress. And lo and behold, in this report, there are a lot of agencies that are. There are some agencies that have made it off the list, and over the course of the 25 years, actually 23 programs have been removed from the list. And so it's not like Hotel California where you check in and you can never check out. There is progress being made, but even on the agencies that are on the list, there still is progress being made, which itself is very important. And so that's why, in lots of ways, I think this is a glass-is-half-full kind of story because it's a story that agencies can make progress, and in making progress, GAO can recognize that take them off the list, but in a sense applaud them for making the kind of progress that many of us sometimes cynically can't imagine ever happening. The report also outlines root solutions for the government's high-risk problems. Would you elaborate on each of these root solutions and how can following them better position agencies to get off the list? That's an important finding. First, that you can get off. Secondly, that it's not like you have to do everything in the universe to get off, but there is a relatively small handful of things that you do that if you do it, you can get off the list. But maybe even more importantly, it's worth thinking about this list as a a general kind of guidance for all federal agencies who want to stay off the list and to try to improve the management of government more generally. And some of it has to do with improving the information systems. It has to do with strengthening management control, improving contract management, getting congressional action when it's needed, because sometimes Congress has to act either by granting more authority or, in some cases, by providing more money. It means creating a human capital system. And by that, I mean, quite simply, figuring out what skills you need to get the job done and going on hiring those people and making sure that they're there. It means improving the boundary management because so much of what happens occurs across the boundaries between agencies with their partners. It means improving performance metrics and it means bringing in next-generation technology to strengthen management overall. So in many ways, it's, a, it's pretty close to a mirror of what it is that gets you off on the list to begin with. You can get off the list by solving the problems that got there to begin with. But instead of thinking about this as a, oh, we've got so many problems, it turns out that we also have so many solutions. And putting them together turns out to be the chart to the road to get off the, the high-risk list and to stay off of it on top of that. So, Don, you mentioned this a little bit earlier. You know, since its inception in 1990, uh, GAO has added uh, almost doubled the number of areas that have uh, been identified as high risk. And, and you kind of alluded to the fact that does that really mean that the federal government's problems are doubled in the period? But it's probably more related to how GAO has employed different strategies and taken performance and management more seriously. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, one of the things that's interesting. And this says something both about GAO and about the broader question about looking at at government's performance. GAO over time has moved away from auditing individual programs with a focus on on financial accounting to a look at assessing the performance of individual agencies and programs to identify problems to now a a new phase in its life where it's looking at the broader issues of, of risk management inside government. And 
And risk management itself is one of those things that, well, that sounds boring, doesn't it? Except that it turns out to be absolutely critical to try to figure out where it is that if the government doesn't perform well, all of us will really notice. I mean, it's, it's very bad if you have a major hurricane and you've got an agency that's not up to the job of being able to rescue people. It's very bad if you have a financial crisis and it turns out you have a set of regulatory agencies not up to the job of overseeing the financial situation and status of the country. It's, it's very bad if you depend on weather satellites and the satellites are not there. And it's very bad if you want to collect taxes and you have a hard time being able to collect the taxes that are due. So you can look at those things and that's what risk management means. And what GAO has been spending much more time on is to look at the broader questions of things that if they go wrong, we will notice and it will be bad. And the broader questions about what we can try to do to solve those problems and with any kind of luck, what I suspect the GEO is moving toward next is trying to figure out in advance how to create a government that itself has more capacity for being able to do better for us and to stay out of these problems to begin with. And where I really see all this going, and it's why it's, oh, I think, incredibly important, is that this really creates a model for what it is that a well-managed government in the 21st century really needs to look at. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with your work, when you compare uh, the early high-risk areas with the newer ones, um, what insights can you can be gleaned from making such a comparison? What's really emerging, I think, is a portrait of the way in which government itself has changed over time. The, the early list had things like NASA contract management, and NASA's had struggles with contract management for as long as there's been a NASA since 90% of NASA's budget is actually spent through contractors. So it goes without saying that if you don't get that right, that you're going to have problems, and many of its most serious problems in the past have been completely on that. So it, some of these issues are, are long-lasting. But what's happened over time is that GAO has begun to see patterns that begin to recur. If it turns out that Agency X has a problem in managing its budget and its financial management system, and Agency Y has the same problem, maybe if we spent more attention on those issues on a government-wide basis, we'd be able to solve those problems and to deal with our bigger issues. So what's really happened over time is, I think, a broader view about the, the fundamental challenges about what government is and how it works and what it's going to take to make it work better. And that, I think, is one of the biggest issues that we have because to go back to just the beginning of our conversation, to imagine that we can solve any problem by managing an agency by sitting at the top and giving orders and trying to write regulations and hope the people at the bottom pay attention, that's just the miss the way in which government operates. Because so much of government operates in very complex partnerships, especially at the federal level. And if you don't manage those partnerships well, then bad things happen. And we don't want those bad things to happen. That's why so often the focus that we have in both in, in newspapers, but also in just our ordinary discussions misses the mark because we, we talk about programs that fail or agencies that screw up. And almost always when those things happen, they're broader systemic issues that are at the core because things have just gotten so complex and we're not going to solve those problems unless we develop systems that are capable of managing that complexity. How can agencies get off the high-risk list? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors Returns. What is the U.S. Coast Guard's strategic direction? 
How is the U.S. Coast Guard modernizing to be ready for today and prepared for tomorrow? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Admiral Paul Zukunft, Commandant, United States Coast Guard. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Dr. Don Kettle, author of the IBM Center Report, Managing Risk, Improving Results, Lessons for Improving Government Management from GAO's High Risk List. Also joining us from IBM is Lisa Bascola. As you mentioned in the previous segment, the importance of leadership at the top. What's interesting to me when I was reading your report, and it seems counterintuitive, is that some agency or mission mission leaders actually want to be put on the list. Would you elaborate on the benefits of being on the high-risk list? Yeah, because this looks like being sent to the principal's yeah. office and then being told, I will not mismanage my federal program 100 times on the blackboard. Why would anybody want to be in that situation? But it turns out that I've actually had conversations with some senior managers, including in the Census Bureau, who are saying, please put me on the risk, on the high risk list. And the reason is, first, that says, my program is important. Second, uh, if something happens with my program, it would be very bad. Third, that the way to prevent that from happening is to make the investments now to make sure that doesn't happen. And fourth, it ensures that everybody throughout the system will be paying careful attention to us so that when we need help, when we need support, when we need to break a logjam, when we need to get a contract signed or when we need to get action from Congress, our odds will improve. And so there are managers out there who say, please put me on the list because they see in the list the ability to be able to get the extra leverage that they need to get their job done because it's easy enough to forget that what really happens out there is that Every single good thing, and sometimes every single bad thing as well, is a result of what individual people out there sitting at their desks doing their best end up doing. And it's how well those managers do their jobs that really determines how well government works. Mm -hmm. And so we want government to work better. We need the people out there in a position to do what needs to be done and their managers who say, you know what, if if I get the extra horsepower that comes from being put on this list, I'm going to get a little bit extra strength when I need it. To get things done. And the reverse of that is we, – and we touched on it in a previous segment – is that there's some people who still believe that being put on a list seems to them – or the perception is that it's arbitrary and maybe capricious. Of how did I get on the list and what have you? So really what I was understanding is how has and – you, and you did touch on it. How has GAO tried to dispel this perception? And perhaps you can talk about the scorecard and the five criteria that make up their way of sort of communicating why you're on here and how you get off. And because one of the things that uh, the GAO has been – a more careful in doing, but they have to be very subtle at this, is to say there are 32 programs in the high-risk list. But that doesn't mean that everything else in the government is working perfectly. Yes. It doesn't mean that they couldn't, if they wanted, gone to 35 or 40. If you stop and think about it just for a second, it's pretty clear that there's a continuum of quality of management in the government. And there's some things that work really, really, really well, like air traffic control in the Social Security Administration. And Social Security at this point has an error rate that is almost uncountable because they do everything so well in distributing checks so reliably to exactly who needs it every month. 
In fact, of course, they don't even distribute checks. It all arrives electronically in your bank account. So that works incredibly well. What GAO has tried to do is say, look, these are the 32 programs and areas that we believe are at highest risk, the ones we want to place the most attention. There are other issues and other challenges that we're watching and paying attention to. They, They can't really say out loud about what those are because that would then create lots of political pressure on those other programs and agencies. But but there is a continuum. And what they're trying to do is to say, these are the programs that need the most attention. And what we're going to be doing is watching them most intently to see whether or not they're making progress. And what they've then created is this, this new system of tracking progress according to this five-pointed star that lays out criteria. For example, the including leadership commitment from the top and demonstrated progress at the bottom and other criteria in between. And so that when they go out and assess what it is that agencies are doing, they will determine whether or not leaders really do seem to get it and have a plan for being able to follow things up. So there are metrics for being able to track progress. And then in the end, they can go back and say, we were at point A last year and point B this year. And because of that, they've moved further down the line. And because of that, we can see that there's progress and a little bit more progress in this area, and we'll take you off the list. So given your research, would you um, pinpoint for us sort of the root of most of the riskiest issues on the high-risk list? The, if I were to point at, at two things in particular, the, the riskiest pieces of the riskiest programs have to do with the challenge that comes from managing across boundaries, sitting within an individual federal agency, and thinking that you can solve your problems or manage your problems by manage your, managing your agency. In an increasing number of cases, success depends on managing relationships across the boundaries or managing the partnerships that you rely on, whether it's with contractors, whether it's with other agencies, whether it's with other sectors, other levels of government. Managers who are successful manage those relationships as opposed to just managing their individual agencies. If you go back to the, the old days that we'd like to forget in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, the biggest problems that came in the earliest days of the government's failed response came because too many people tried to manage agencies instead of trying to solve problems. Success started as individual managers came and looked at problems that had to be solved in an effort to try to figure out what resources they could find to solve them. So as we began stepping outside, let's manage agencies to let's solve problems. That's where success occurred. There's a very important lesson for 21st century management in that. And the second piece that comes along with that has to do with the human capital piece. It has to do with getting the right people with the right skills in the right places to do the right jobs. And that, in a sense, is another way of saying the first thing all over again, that if you're going to have people who manage boundaries, manage across those boundaries to develop good partnerships, you need people who are skilled at being able to do that. Then they need backup with financial systems and information systems and performance systems. They need the ability to be able to put the resources to work in the best possible way. But it really has to do with figuring out what the job is to be done, what skills you need to do it, and then developing the metrics to drive it. If you do that, that is as close to a prescription for managerial improvement, for managerial success, as we're likely to find any time in the near future, I think. The high-risk list does catalog the federal government's nastiest problems. Does it also provide an invaluable guide to the root causes of federal government's management challenges? 
And that's what I think is many, in many ways most interesting. I mean, you could, you could come at this report that I wrote and the underlying GAO document says, oh, wow, here's a, here's a lifetime collection of stories to write about how government screws up. And again, GAO, it's important to remember, is not brought in to uh, try to catalog all the great things that the government does. It, it tends by its very nature to focus on problems because that's what members of Congress need information on and those are the things we need to pay attention to. The most important thing about this high-risk list, I think, is really not so much about the high-risk list itself, but about the lessons that it teaches about what it's going to take to make government work better. We know that, I would argue, government works pretty well most of the time. It doesn't work as well as we want it to. There's some gaps between what it's doing and what we need for it to do. And the big question is, how can we close the gap? And what this report and what my analysis, I hope, does is to try to provide a kind of roadmap of what it is that smart managers would do. If you're, if you're the president and you care about this, if you're cabinet secretary, you want to make your operations work better. If you are head of an agency and you're responsible for trying to deliver value to taxpayers for the dollars that you get, what do you need to pay the most attention to? And one of the things that I find most interesting is that here we have a, what may seem a relatively random collection of programs scattered throughout the government. And out of them comes a set of relatively few key principles that, if you pay attention to them, turn out to be a roadmap for making government work better. And that, I think, is a pretty important finding, not just for the high-risk list, but I hope more broadly for the effort to try to make government itself work better. Yeah. So, Don, before we get into the four strategies you identify in your report for getting off the staying off the high-risk list, um, I'd like to put a finer point on leadership commitment, uh, which is essentially a prerequisite for making progress, improving, and getting off, ultimately getting off the list. How does, again, how does GAO characterize leadership commitment? What GAO does is to not only talk to agency leaders and essentially to size up whether or not the – do they get it? Do they have a plan? Are they committed to the plan? Do they spend any time trying to implement the plan? Uh, do they have a system of metrics in place so that they know whether or not their plan actually works? And they spend a lot of time on this. And it, it turns out that both in conversations I've had and, and conversations I've had with the people who have had the conversations, it's pretty clear the ones who get it and how to try to identify this. One of the things that may strike people as surprising is that the Department of Homeland Security, for all of its enormous management problems, has a team at the top now that is as committed to the idea of trying to transform itself and its operations as any place in government right now. Secretary Johnson and others who have been leading this charge have, in on the scale of leadership commitment, they're at the top because they have said, look, we've, we've got programs here we're responsible for. They've got to work. We have a huge administrative challenge of putting together a unified department involving 22 different agencies. That's got to happen. We deliver, we're responsible for delivering real value to citizens because what we do is important. And we understand what GAO has identified. We get it and we've got a plan and we're making progress. And in fact, they are. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that is important is instead of saying, well, here we go again, we've got people who in fact at the top are paying careful attention to this. And it varies across the government. Uh, it's easy enough to get distracted by whatever it is that's the, the lead story in the paper today or by whatever it is that a congressional oversight hearing is paying attention to, uh, to some new headline or whatever it is that I'm going to be doing for my next job. But 
there are people at the top who really are paying attention to it, and GAO is doing interviews constantly. Its staffers are talking with the folks who are involved in these agencies. They're talking to people at the top. But you can also tell commitment by what people on the front lines and the operational levels in between are working on. If the people at the top get it and they're driving it, you feel it in the middle. What strategies can keep programs off the high-risk list? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Dr. Don Kettle, author of the IBM Center Report, Managing Risk, Improving Results, Lessons for Improving Government Management from GAO's high-risk list. Also joining us from IBM is Lisa Bascola. So now I'd like to use this segment to sort of uh, peel back uh, the onion, so to speak, on your four strategies. Uh, the first strategy calls for developing a plan of action, which you mentioned in the previous segment around leadership. Uh, would you tell us more about this strategy? And perhaps you could highlight a few illustrations from GAO's analysis. Sure. What's, what's really important here is that if you're, really, you're going to make something happen, that what you need is not only a plan for top officials, but it has to be something that's carried through and carried throughout the agency. The, the way in which the IRS's information systems improved happened because people at the top decided that they had to transform the system. They developed a plan for doing that. They had consistent leadership and then worked through officials throughout the procurement process throughout the agency to be able to make this happen. You don't implement a, a new information technology system with relatively few hiccups without having an entire chain from top to bottom involved in it. It's worth looking at NASA, which, if you think about it, is a, a fascinating challenge, uh, an, an agency that is struggling now for its budget, that is redefining its mission, but which is regularly rated by the Partnership for Public Service, among others, as the best place to work in the federal government. I mean, how does that happen? And it happens because leaders at the top instill a sense of mission in the people who work for it from top to bottom. How would you know? I mean, I had, I had a long conversation with a guy who is a genuine rocket scientist who is a, about a 32-year-old, came from Puerto Rico, who's in charge of phototelemetry, interpreting satellites and what it is that they tell us about climate change. And that's something that he does, he's excited about, 
and which he does because of the leadership that's created from the top. That's a pretty impressive set of, of connections and why it is that NASA is viewed as such a great place to work because he gets a chance to do that thanks to the leadership from the people who provide the opportunities for him to be able to do what he's doing. Strategy two focuses on the importance of communication. Would you elaborate on the core elements of this strategy and highlight programs uh, that have employed the strategy to good effect? And here we have a system where what really matters is that you need communication, not only communication, but communication with stakeholders out there. And we have a case here, for example, if you look at uh, some of the improvements that Medicare and Medicaid are involved in, they are working very carefully, not only with with state shareholders and stakeholders on this, but also in a, a strategy to try to connect with, with contractors who are out there in charge of managing the program. Uh, there, for example, is a, is a measurement system that exists to try to, to track the quality of care provided through Medicare and Medicaid. And the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services run an annual conference where they bring people in from all across the country. And among other things, they give awards to state people who are actually doing a great job in tracking the quality of care that people who live in their states receive. You think about that as a partnership where the federal government convenes people to talk about what it is that they all share, providing high-quality care, recognize stakeholders, in this case, state government agencies who are in charge of doing that, and have a chance to showcase that for other states struggling with the same kinds of problems. That's a remarkable system of communication that uh, that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has done, and that's part of their own effort to try to get off the high-risk list themselves. The third strategy focuses on enhancing governance. Could you elaborate on this strategy a little bit and maybe talk about a couple of cases there? And in this case, it has to do with uh, governance, and that has to be understood in a broad sense, because governance these days is not only leadership at the top, which we spent some time talking about, and creating new structures in addition, but it has to do with creating uh, processes and, and better technology. Uh, to go back to the, the challenge of trying to make sure that the Bureau of Land Management actually uh, extracts from, uh, from oil drillers and gas producers the royalties that they owe from extracting gas and oil from federal properties, they've done two things. One is that they've hired some more employees to be able to do the job, but and this sounds pretty straightforward, but it turns out to be very hard to do in practice. They've developed new accounting systems backed by technology so that they can track how much oil and gas the private producers are actually withdrawing from, from federal land. Uh, we don't want to have lots of extra federal bureaucrats out there running around snooping into every oil well that exists. I mean, that would be unthinkable. It couldn't happen. wouldn't work very well. But what they've done is they've developed new systems of technology to be able to track how much oil and gas is actually being withdrawn from federal lands. And then that plus having some additional federal employees has allowed the Bureau of Land Management to do a better job of being able to track how much is being taken out, how much the way of royalties are owed, and then being able to collect that money for federal taxpayers. So that that means that either we get a little bit more of what it is we want from government without having to pay higher taxes, or maybe our taxes are lower than they would be otherwise. In either case, it's the direct result of improvements in governance that have to do with some pretty straightforward but also pretty sophisticated systems of being able to make sure that works better. And it gets right into the fourth strategy we're talking about, Don, which is uh, in your report, which is a focus on resources. Uh, Could you tell us more about that strategy 
and perhaps highlight some uh, how important is it to have the right amount of strat- amount, of, amount of resources to tackle a problem. And the answer, uh, on the one hand, of course, is I mean, what could be more important than having the the resources that you need? But on the other hand, one of the things that we know is that uh, first, I mean, nobody wants to pay more taxes. Trying to extract more money from Congress to do anything is a tough battle. That there's a lot you could actually do without having more money. And so asking for more cash ought to be the last resort and not the first. And one of the important findings of, of my report and my analysis here is that you go a really, really, really long way down the road toward making government work better without having to ask for another nickel. You can have vast improvements by manage, management improvements that you can impose along the way. But at some point, you can only go so far down that road. It's like having a, a, a great car and you're kind of trying to drive across the country. And at some point, if you don't put more gas in the tank, you're going to run out and you're not going to get to where you want to go. And that's the case, for example, when it comes to the, the satellite problem. The weather satellite issue that we have is something that, on the one hand, uh, is absolutely critical. Uh, you don't want to have a storm coming in and you miss by 50 miles in the in landfall. could be the difference between a, a, a relatively unpopulated area and a major city. Uh, you don't want to make that mistake, especially if you have to decide whether or not you need to evacuate that city or not. It turns out that our satellite coverage is thin, that the satellites are old, they need to be replaced, and they need to be replaced fast, and you can't do it in a hurry, so that you need to figure out what the cycle is. You don't want to over-satellite yourself either on top of that. So the question is, at what stage do you need which investments? That's something that's pretty sophisticated. So we need more investment in that. And that's a case clearly where it's needed. But on the other hand, it turns out that the people who, who run these satellites are pretty smart. And it up to a point, they can reposition satellites, get better pictures, and reinforce the information that they're getting by being able to to use their smarts. So not every problem requires expenditures of lots of money, but at some point, some of these problems to be solved inevitably require more cash, and it's the ability of smart managers to be able to help both make the case for doing that and explain why it isn't ultimately going to matter. Um, you note that these strategies aren't just suited to getting programs off the list. How can they keep programs from getting on the list in the first place? And do they represent effect, an effective management strategy for agencies? One of the things that is worth thinking about is if you, if you believe even half of what it is we've been talking about today, and suppose you're a new administration coming in, uh, there are a couple things that, that you know. One is that nobody's going to applaud you for doing a great job. But one of the quickest ways to take the, the elevator to the basement in terms of your polls is to have major problems occur in programs that people care about. Make it look like you're not in control, having big waste, fraud, and abuse stories. So what this really suggests is that there may be some things that you really need to pay more attention to than others. Uh, it's hard to get presidents to pay attention to management. It's, there are public opinion polls. There are negotiations with foreign countries. There are big battles over what to do with with Congress. And no matter who wins, there's going to be a battle with Congress. We know that for sure. But one of the things that we we should learn by this point is that major problems in management are death to presidents. The the place where the negatives for George W. Bush exceeded the positives and never recovered 
occurred not after mission accomplished in Iraq or any of the other problems, occurred after Hurricane Katrina. He never recovered from that. When the, when the administration, uh, the Obama administration launched the Affordable Care Act and had the gargantuan problems with the website, almost exactly the same thing happened at almost exactly the same point. And only by incredible administrative energy were they able to pull themselves back from the from the blink from the brink, both in terms of management, but also in terms of the political polling. But they saw themselves going down the same hole. That the same thing will happen for sure with the next administration, unless they pay attention. But you can't pay attention to everything. If you're a president, you may not want to pay attention to anything when it comes to management. So if you ask yourself, what do I need really to pay attention to, and what do I need to make sure my people pay attention to, the thing that's important here is that there is a there's a, a checklist here that says that if you if you pay attention to this the boundary spending piece, you get the performance metrics right, you think about the information systems, think about financial management, you think about the skill sets, and most of these are things that, that presidents don't like to pay much attention to, but if somebody at the center does and you create efforts across the government, both with the appointees that you put in place and the systems that you create your odds of being able to escape these problems vastly improve. And that, I think, is pretty important. We tend not often to pay much attention to these things, but the one thing we can predict is that the next president's going to need to come in. It's now fashionable to have a management agenda, and it's the kind of thing that people criticize a new president for not doing if a new president doesn't. So what should the management agenda consist of? And it turns out that the lessons that the high-risk list teaches provide a kind of guidepost for what it is that the next administration needs to do, and by doing it, not only improve the odds that the the most troubled programs in the government can be improved, but that government in general will work better. And that, I think, is a pretty good thing. Thank you for joining us today, Don. It was a real pleasure having you in. It was such a pleasure having a chance to be able to talk. Thank you. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Dr. Don Kettle, author of the IBM Center Report, Managing Risk, Improving Results, Lessons for Improving Government Management from GAO's High Risk List. This report builds on several reports that the Center has released over the last few years on the topic of risk management in government. You may order or download a free copy of this and any other IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. My co-host today from IBM has been Lisa Muscola. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What is the U.S. Coast Guard's strategic direction? How is the U.S. Coast Guard modernizing to be ready for today and prepared for tomorrow? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Admiral Paul Zukunft, Commandant, United States Coast Guard. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.